Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Greetings and welcome to Hell. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, who has gone fishing. And hoping to offer you a bung later so you might sign with Celtic, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 18th of October 1994. Sonic and Knuckles is top of the game chart, though Doom 2 takes top spot on all formats. Take that, are top of the pops with Shaw, and life is like a box of chocolates as Forrest Gump is top of the box office. Hello, my name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. Would you like a chocolate? Oh, thank you. It's funny what a young man recollects. You're the same as everybody else. You are no different. Your boy's different. Are you stupid or something? I'm as stupid as a stupid does. I'm Jenny. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. She was my most special friend. My only friend. We was together all the time. We was like peas and carrots, Jenny and I. Run, Forrest! Hey, stupid! Run! I told you, but I can run like the wind blows. Who in the hell is that? And there's Forrest Gump, coach. Just a local idiot. Ah, Forrest Gump, a movie that I know I've seen, and it is a very, very good film. It's not one I'll throw on on a regular occasion. It is a film that I think once you've seen it, you've, you've seen it. I saw it quite a lot when I was a kid. When it like had its premiere on the BBC, a friend of mine taped it, and he kind of thought it was a comedy because he found it very funny from crippled boy to football star and war hero tom hanks is forrest gump where were you hit in the buttocks son i'd kind of like to see that <laughs> Go! 
tremendous army. To do whatever you tell me, Trail Sergeant? God damn it, Trump! You're a goddamn genius! I just felt like running. Forrest, I do love you. She was my most special friend. Winner of six Oscars, Forrest Gump. New Year's Day at nine on BBC One. He enjoyed a lot of the Gumpisms and things like that. So he thought it was like a comedy movie. So he would watch it like a Jim Carrey comedy movie. Up until a certain point when it stops becoming like, here are some funny things that he says and it's now just, you know, about American history and stuff. So I have actually seen this film a fair number of times. I know the first time I saw it was that BBC premiere and I enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very good and I watched it again. I think it was on a streaming service. I watched it five or so years ago and I, yeah, and I was like, yeah, it's very good. And some of the special effects have held up pretty well because yeah. this film was a low-key kind of special effects masterclass because yes it is set in american history but they put forrest into a bunch of historical situations they have him meeting various famous people being at famous places I'd arguably some of the scenes you could do better on the computers that we're currently using to talk but that's not because they did it badly then that's just because computer technology has gotten crazy yeah it, it's I, I think it holds up really, really well. Like all the stuff, you know, of him meeting um, uh, the president and things like that. It was like, I can't believe he had to go pee. And they do like the mouth movements and stuff. Like they, they CGI the mouth to move differently to lip sync with the new uh, voices that they're putting in there. I think a lot of it's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, this was a full ILM joint when it came to the special effects. Ken Ralston and his team were were behind this one. It was done using technology that at that point had been around for a while. Tom Hanks was filmed against a blue screen. There were reference markers so they could line up with the archive footage. They used voice actors to record and re-record the dialogue. It wasn't that they were doing anything spectacularly new. They were just using it in collaboration with things like um, chroma key, image warping, morphing and rotoscoping. All of those are existing technologies, but they were using them all together. And that yeah. is what gave us Tom Hanks meeting JFK. Exactly. Or, you know, sitting down and being interviewed by Dick Cavett with John Lennon sat next to him, which actually is one of my, it's my favorite scene of the movie because it features my favorite joke, which is he's come back from China uh, from playing the ping pong tournaments. He's talking about like, he goes, oh, in China, people don't really have anything. And John Lennon leans over and says, no possessions. <laughs> and in China... They never go to church. No religion, too? Ah. Hard to imagine. Well, it's easy if you try, Dick. And then he just sort of like pauses and he sort of looks off into the middle distance as if he's writing the song in his head. What is it with Bob Zemeckis? <laughs> and I'm going to attribute other people's musical creations to other people. <laughs> is that Marvin Berry? <laughs> Anyway, it's my favourite line of the film. Have you ever read the book? Not at all. I have. I rented it from the library when I was at school. Because like the, the film essentially takes like the first 11 or so chapters and then skips to the end and with the, the invention of Bubba Gump Shrimp. Because like, you know, in the all the other stuff, he's like a chess player. He's, he does he becomes a professional wrestler for a little bit. And it is basically just like the book kind of takes the really interesting first third and the final and then adds in sort of like you know the, the him running across the country and things like that like all the running stuff that's an invention for the film 
but it's a, it's actually a pretty solid book. I've even read the sequel as well, Gump and Co., which is less good. It's a bit too referential, the second one, because the second one, the sequel book had been written by the time the film had come out. So it's about like Forrest Gump is now a, a pop culture icon because a film was made about his life. And like Forrest Gump even meets Tom Hanks like later on in the book. It's a bit too clever for its own good and, it, and it's less interesting as well yeah because they've been wanting to do a see like he sold them the rights to do the sequel and they were working on it for a long 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 time it just sort of languished in development hell there were sort of stories of in 2007 that it was going to be redone and they were going to redraft it but i found an interview from 2008 with uh eric roth who wrote the script of forrest gump and he said, I turned in my version of the Forrest Gump sequel or part two, or whatever you call it. It's a continuation, really. I want to start my movie literally two minutes after the end of the last one with him on the bus bench waiting for his son to get home from school. I turned in the script the night before 9-11. And we sat down, Tom Hanks and Bob Zemeckis and I looked at each other and said, we don't think this is relevant anymore. The world has changed. Now time has obviously passed, but maybe some things should just be one thing and left as they are. If it's not been written already, there probably is an entire book or thesis on how 9-11 changed, particularly American film, television and music culture. So many films went into development hell or just got straight out cancelled. Films were reshot. Attitudes to music changed, artists that were popular dropped, artists that had language came back up because of nostalgia and patriotism. Television similarly changed. Saying it's fascinating given the amount of people that died feels ghoulish, but it is it is purely on a technical sense fascinating how a single incident will shift an entire culture or an entire aspect of a culture. And we're living through it now again. Yeah, we are indeed. Lindsay Ellis has got a really good video that she did last year, I think it was, about the music scene pre, like basically the the music scene post 9-11 and anti-war songs that came off the back of it and comparing those to anti-war songs from the 70s and like the actual like uh, sort of America's reaction to them as well. You know, like the Dixie Chicks being like really uh, anti-Bush and that, that meant they got dropped from their label compare that to sort of like the anti-Vietnam war songs and things like that. It's a really, I I highly recommend people go and check it out. I mean, back to Forrest Gump, despite the actual fairly heavy lifting that ILM had to do, it came in on a budget of 55 million, which isn't too bad given the scale of some of the stuff involved. On its opening weekend in the US and Canada, it grossed nearly $25 million and it stayed on release for months and months. And when it was actually removed from release in the US in January 95, it had hit $300 million just domestic. It was the second highest grossing film of the year behind The Lion King. And then a month later, it was reissued after the Academy Award nominations were announced and it grossed an additional $30 million in the US and Canada. Yeah, this film made bank, which is, you know, wonderfully Hollywood that the film is considered a loss. Because of the way that Hollywood financials work, this film was considered a money loser. Like this actually created a bit of a a rift between like Paramount and the guy that wrote Forrest Gump the book, 
So they paid him $350,000 for the rights, plus 3% of the film's net profits. Whereas Bob Zemeckis and Tom Hanks signed a deal where they got a percentage share of the film's gross receipts. So because of that, they themselves got $40 million bonuses off the back of all of the tickets sold of it. But because the film didn't net a profit, Winston Croom got nothing else. That was a huge war of words between the two parties. Yeah, he wasn't even mentioned in any of the film's six Oscar-winning speeches. It was a, it was a big deal. It was sorted. It was settled because Groom declared that you know he was satisfied. He was satisfied with Paramount's explanation of their accounting and how the film hadn't turned a profit. And purely as a coincidence, this came after he received a seven-figure contract with Paramount for film rights to another of his books, Gump and Co. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? <laughs> Mystery for the ages. But it does also show how, as you said, shady accounting is in Hollywood because, yeah, 330 million domestic in US and Canada and international, almost another $350 million. But it didn't turn a profit. Weird that, isn't it? So weird how Hollywood works. It's because they count all of their movies together. And like they sort of offset each other. It's a bizarre, bizarre money laundering scheme is what it sounds like. So it's a racket is what it is. I've also been really fascinated by Forrest Gump in kind of like recent times because there are people way, way smarter than I am who have re- who have written very, very interesting theses around um, Forrest Gump for kind of like something that I never would have picked up on. I mean, the film has been criticized in recent years for being too conservative. And how the film essentially says, like, Forrest Gump, who lives out the American dream, is the winner by the end of this. But Jenny, who goes against American values and goes into drugs, goes into premarital sex, goes into protests and this and the other, ends up dead. So, like, there's a lot of people who would argue that that kind of what, and the Republicans used Forrest Gump during, like, you know, campaigns and things like that to be like, the poster child of the American dream and the American family value. And it was a yeah, really much smarter people have written about this. So I'm, I won't like kind of like reiterate what they have said, but I would urge people to go out and read these sorts of things because they are very, very interesting takes on the movie. Not sure I fully agree with every single one that I've read, but a lot of them are really, really interesting. I do find it interesting that Bob Zemeckis would direct a film like that when this is the same guy that we've already paid reference to Back to the Future once. Let's do it again. His entire concept that he directed in Back to the Future was, you go back to 1955 and make sure your mum and dad knock boots at the appropriate Mm -hmm. time. By the way, your mum is going to try and jump your bones. Yeah. But meanwhile, direct Forrest Gump, where innocence and virtue, good, premarital sex and drugs, bad, and also Forrest Gump wrote Imagine. (laughs) Now, Dominic Diamond, when we interviewed him um, a few weeks back now, yes, we are going to keep referencing it. You would too if you got to interview one of your kind of teenage childhood heroes. Yeah, the final interview as well, no less. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to live on that because I haven't written a book. <laughs> Do you know someone who has? Yeah, Dominic. <laughs> but um, he mentioned that like in series two, Take That were like the biggest guests that they could get at that time. And I think now, a year or so later... Take that are like the big hot thing now. Yeah, and and this this song, sure, 
I'd be honest, I couldn't tell you what this song sounds like if I hadn't gone and listened to it. I mean, obviously yep. it makes number one. It's their lead single from their third album called Nobody Else, which isn't actually out until next year. So they're using this to push the album or rather build the hype for the album. But it's not one that jumps out to me, though. Of like 90s take that. Pff, no, I would have to, I would have to seek this out to remind myself of what it sounds like. Which is amazing because in 2003, Q Magazine ranked Sure at number 86 in their list of the 1001 best songs ever. Now, it appearing in 1001 best songs ever, that, okay, that's, that's okay. 86. I was going to say, that's top 100. That's great. That's top 10%. But yeah, it was released on the 3rd of October. Their previous single had stalled at number three, hadn't made number one after they'd had four consecutive number one singles. But sure, that just went straight to the top, becoming their fifth number one single and remained at the top for two weeks. But did it dropped off the face of the planet after that. And uh, it was the 42nd best-selling single of 94 in the UK, but also the lowest-selling number one single of the year. Huh. So I'm guessing there just wasn't a lot coming out because we've had a number of one-week wonders. I was going to say, like, that maths is as dodgy as uh, Forrest Gump's accounting and also me saying that it was in the top 10% when I'm not actually sure if that's the correct math to go with that. I suppose they're not saying the most copies sold when it got to number one. It's also how long it loitered elsewhere in the charts. Top 50, top 100, whatever. Yeah, you did say that like they just sort of fell off the face, really. But the music video is kind of interesting because clearly someone saw three men and a little lady and went that, but we take that, please. Well, that's cute. Yeah, it features the band in their apartment trying to get ready for a party while also babysitting a five-year-old girl who is halting them from getting ready while her mother is out of town. Gary's trying to write a song. Jason is dancing because Jason and Mark is preparing food and trying to deal with Emily throwing her food on the table. When Robbie returns from grocery shopping, Howard takes the calls in Owen's place and once Owen is finally able to tuck Emily into bed, the song starts because this music video is seven minutes long. Wow. Good Lord, there was money being thrown around in the music industry in the 90s for music videos. I'd, I'd miss, I miss this period of music videos. Okay, i Do Anything For Love was a long music video, but at least almost the entire thing was the sodding song. It wasn't like three, four minutes of comedy cheap remake of Three Men and a Little Lady. But yeah, the song starts, the party begins, various guests arrive, and as various people hook up at the party, the band are seen performing the song in vest nets against a blue <laughs> backdrop. 90s. And as the guests leave the party, one girl is left behind and falls asleep in the trash department. The video ends with Emily waking up in the middle of the night to find the band asleep amidst the disarray from the party. See, I thought Emily would come into the music video, actual the music part of the music video somehow. No, she's kipping. I was waiting for you to say that. There is a shorter edited version of the song, which basically just starts where the song starts, which seems fair enough because the whole wraparound has sweet f all to do with the actual song or the music part of the music video. But like you, I do miss the time when there was money to be thrown at music videos. Now it's just kind of so-so. May as well not be there. Gamesmaster Stadium for the final of the Video Games Cup. After 30 seconds, Fun is winning 3-0. The opening credits have dominated the game so far, but warming up on the touchline, we have our first challenge. So it's over to Gamesmaster. I thought for a moment that this would have some sort of tie into USA 94 because of like the football connection and stuff. 
And then I was like, oh no, because this episode's airing in October. So unless they thought it was going to be a different airing, then that might account for this. Or it's just Dom wanted to do some football stuff because we've already done train stuff and we've done some other stuff in other episodes. We do also get the start of a football tournament. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Which I don't know if there are moments missing from this episode or if it was just dropped in there because production errors, you know, stuff that Dom's mentioned, stuff that other people have mentioned, that season four was in its own way a bit chaotic behind the scenes. I, d- I did have to rewind the video because when we do get the start of that football tournament, I'm like, did they talk about this last week or earlier in this episode? And uh, the answer is no. No, they didn't. Yeah. What this open did give us a chance is it gave the goblins something fun to do and it gave Dom a chance to be a right arsehole and burst their ball. And they just look so dejected. The little bastard. I can't believe he did that. I was laughing all the way through. I thought it was absolutely great. Top shelf stuff. We're off to a good start here. Well, let's see if the challenge can continue this form. What are we playing, Games Master? I'm feeling mean today, so my first challenge on Echo 2 is something of a stinker. Contestants have one minute to jump out of the pool and find the predicament, which miraculously transforms them into a seagull. After this, they have to fly over the cliff, drop back in the water, and teleport to the next level, where they must swim through three rings. Frankly, I doubt they'll be out of it, but I made it difficult on purpose. Now, Dominic Diamond, in a bit, calls this an aquatic Krypton factor, and he's not bloody wrong either. This challenge is more complicated than some of the bloody consultation zone walkthroughs. The one I did the other week going through Metroid or whatever it was, where I just did that in one take, this is that kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, it's a simple challenge. All you need to do is jump up here, turn into a seagull, then you fly down the other side, turn back into a dolphin, then go through a time warp, then go through rings. This is also a challenge where you know this had been rehearsed. This is one they they would have been working on in the green room all goddamn day. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way you could approach this one even like kind of half scene. You needed to know what you were doing. Yeah, pretty much as well, because as we find out in the in the challenges, if you um you transform into the seagull, if you then hit another bird that knocks you back into the water, you ain't finishing this challenge. Like you need to do this perfectly and smoothly first time. Because like, yeah, just like the listing of I, I did enjoy Games Master saying like I, I made this difficult on purpose. You know, that got a bit of a chuckle out of me. But I, I did get a bit of a laugh because it was like swim through the ocean, jump for the crystal, transform into a seagull, dive over the rock face, turn the crank, snap the plank, boot the marble down the chute. Now you gotta roll, hit the pole, knock the ball, run the rubber tub tub, hit the man into the pan, trap is set. Well done. That was that was I tripped up ever so slightly. <laughs> you won't in the edit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all in for this because this is a bonkers challenge it's a bonkers challenge for a bonkers game and a bonkers game series i mean this isn't as weird as it will get but it's pretty close because it's a sequel to echo the dolphin the sequel that no one was really asking for but we got anyway and it is a continuation of the story yes because echo the dolphin did have a fairly complicated story that involved time travel aliens uh crystal powers It was almost a fifth Indiana Jones movie in its kind of use of various artifacts. I don't think many people really got into the story of Echo the Dolphin because no one could work out how the Smeg to play it. In hindsight, it is easier to appreciate what a great game this is because now we're more open to different gaming experiences. People were approaching this going, why can't I play this like Sonic? Why can't I play this like Castle of Illusion? This is confusing. I'm going back to Sonic and or Castle of Illusion. 
There were people that probably bought Echo the Dolphin and took it back and swapped it for Bubsy and were still happier with that decision. Crazy people. Oh yeah, 100%. And I, I really appreciate what Ed Anunziata was going for with Echo. And, you know, like this was one man's vision real, like brought to life. Like this was a pitch to Tom Kalinske of like, I've got this idea of playing a game and it's not like any other game that's been released for this system previously. And I really do appreciate what he was going for. But I remember playing Echo the Dolphin when it came out around a friend's house and just not getting it. Because as you say, I was used to Sonic used to castle illusion tasmania those sorts of platform games this is not that kind of game even though it's sort of presented like that sort of game so i really i digested the story of echo the dolphin through sonic the comic i would say that's probably the best way to do it and if you guys want to do that now you can do it by checking out some episodes of sonic the comic the podcast because they've covered it on there but this was the second echo game although not technically called echo 2 it was called echo the tides of time and was meant to be the second in a trilogy i mean i didn't know there was a sequel at the time I, this didn't not this didn't hit my radar. I must have seen it on Games Master, but it was like years later when I was at Game Station in my university years, and I was like, bloody hell, there was a sequel to Echo the Dolphin. I don't remember this game coming out at all. Because we did get a third game, didn't we? That was on the Dreamcast. Yeah, and that was not actually a continuation. That was a reboot and also had narration in it from uh, once and future Doctor Who, Mr. Tom Baker. <laughs> That's nice. Because at that time, he was doing voiceovers all over the shop. Do you think that Tom Baker doing voiceover for an Echo game is more in keeping with his character than Leonard Nimoy doing the voiceover work for uh, uh, the, the Seaman game? What was it called? Captain Seaman or something? It was just Seaman or Seaman, depending yeah. on which edge of the joke you want to go for. I actually think, you know, I think uh, Tom Baker is a more on point choice for Echo the Dolphin because as a concept, it's weird. And there's time travel. Yeah, there's time travel as well. So it does, and it involves kind of like a moral and ecological message, which Doctor Who often did, even in Tom Baker's era. There was comments in there on political, sociological structure and all that stuff. So that fits. Whereas Leonard Nimoy doing Seaman, that was definitely just a case of let's ask Leonard Nimoy to do this. He likes whales and that, doesn't he? He did that in Star Trek once. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, you were talking about Echo 2. They did add this gimmick, which we see in this game, where you are a dolphin until you're not. And then you are a seagull, a jellyfish, a shark, a school of fish. Hmm. Becoming a shark, that makes sense because basically sharks are dolphins, but are like openly arseholes as opposed to dolphins, which are kind of stealth arseholes. They appear all friendly and they appear all kind of cute and everything. But no, dolphins are dicks. I've seen that episode of The Simpsons. I know that they're dicks. Yeah. I actually owned this game as well. I got it as a part of like a job lot of Mega Drive games. I've never booted it up, which is, a, you know, that's really bad on my part. I should do, really, and, get, and give, it a, give it a good whirl. Indulging in this aquatic Krypton factor, we have Robert Ford and Adam Ray. Uh, is it Robert Ford or Bobby? It's Robert Ford. Robert, do you not like being called Bobby, no? Not at all. It's just that there's an Oxford United player called Bobby Ford, bizarrely enough. Well, that's why I don't like being called it. You have impeccable taste, I have to say, Robert. Moving on to you, Adam, Echo 2 features a dolphin. Do you like dolphins? Yeah, I do, yeah. What, what, what do you like about dolphins? Uh, why they swim? That's quite, that's quite nice. I love dolphins myself. I can eat three a week, actually, Adam. And playing this challenge is Robert and Adam, but we are going to make sure that we do call Robert Robert because he does not like the name Bobby. Because his surname is Ford and uh, there's an Oxford United player called Bobby Ford. And Robert says, that is exactly why I don't like being called Bobby. And Dom goes, well, you have impeccable taste. 
And apparently Adam likes dolphins because of how they swim. Uh, but Dominic Diamond said he can only eat three a week. Eating dolphins becomes the running joke for this challenge. It's not the last we'll hear of it. Doom 2 has become the fastest selling PC game ever, aided by a controversial ad campaign. It shipped over 100,000 copies in the UK and over half a million worldwide in its first week alone. If you think games like this are too violent, well, there's also versions waiting on the Jaguar, Apple Mac and 32X, so uh, tough. Now, we can sort of talk about, you know, the, the stats and things like this, but the thing that jumped out to me the most is Dominic talking about the various ports that it's going to get, including the Jaguar and... For the very first time, I'm pretty sure on this episode the, uh, of this series, I'm mentioning of the Mega Drive 32X. Can't wait to play that Jaguar port. Did it come out on the Jaguar, Ash? No. It didn't come out on the 32X either. So clearly there were plans for it, but it never came out. I would wager probably because Doom on the 32X is really bad. Or maybe it's just uh, no one bought the 32X. And the same way that no one bought the Jaguars, they were like, let's not bother porting this across. But there was a version for the Mac. So there we go. The Associated Ledger preview last week saw the unveiling of Nintendo's Ultra 64 racer Cruising USA in its arcade form. But the best game on show was definitely Sega's Virtua Cop. As you can see for yourself, this isn't a game about snogging birds. Up next, we get a couple of little previews here of Cruising USA. So this kind of ties into the magazine article that we had a few episodes back now talking about the Ultra 64. But So while that's very cool to see in person, I loved this looking at Virtua Cop here because boy, howdy, do I love like Virtua Cop games, the Time Crisis games. These are absolute pound wasters down at the arcade. I do like a good light gun shooter, be it Virtua Cop, be it Time Crisis, House of the Dead. Oh, yes. Always love them. Great to see here. We do get to talk a lot about Virtua Cop, I guess, later this year, because we are going to be on to season five before the end of 2021. But Cruising USA, this is going to be the only time we really see it. It doesn't get a mm -hmm. challenge. It doesn't get a review. It doesn't get much more attention beyond this, as best as I can tell. And this was one of the two games that they were going, this is the Ultra 64, and that is bollocks. <laughs> yes, it certainly was. It was branded as the first release of the Ultra 64 platform, but it was based on the Midway V-Unit arcade hardware, which predated the silicon graphics-based module that would become the Nintendo 64. This and Killer Instinct were planned for as launch titles for the then Ultra 64. And to my memory, they are not launch titles, are they, in the end? No, in fact, there were Super Nintendo and Game Boy versions of these games before there were Nintendo 64 versions of the games. And when they came out, neither of them looked as good as the arcades. Although one thing of note is that the arcade version was critically and commercially successful and actually outsold Daytona USA. Did it really? The Nintendo 64 version was very poor, but was still commercially successful, probably because the marketing machine behind it did wonders. Yeah, it's one of the early titles that I remember on the 64. A friend of mine had it because he got 64 like proper early doors. And I seem to remember him having this. And this game basically existed because Nintendo, as they were working on their 64-bit machine and as they were working on their deal with Williams and Midway, 
because Williams being the parent company, they saw what was going on in the arcades. They saw Daytona. They saw where Namco were going with Ridge Racer. And they were like, we want a piece of that pie. And so that's where Cruising USA came from. But when it came to the home port, Williams basically had to take the arcade version and downgrade almost everything. And not only did it miss the launch window, it also ended up having to go back to the drawing board because the port did not meet Nintendo standards. They had to retool the entire thing. It also makes me question what are Nintendo standards because the one that was eventually released was Dog Dirt. But it was an improvement over the one that had been initially presented. So maybe that's what got it the seal of approval. Finally, the problem with the Neo Geo system was although you got arcade perfect versions of games like Super Sidekicks 2, Wild Heroes, and Windjammers, the games cost about 150 quid, so only spoilt brats could afford them. With the new Neo Geo CD machine, you can pick them up for 40 to 50 quid from November. Hooray for Mr. Geo! Now, this is very much worth my time because it features Windjammers, and Windjammers is awesome, and we get Windjammers as a challenge coming up very soon, and I'm very excited by that. I do like a bit of Windjammers. Dom doesn't sound so sure about it, though. No, which I I seem to recall that he really did like Windjammers. I suspect it's more because of how Windjammers as a word sounds. I mean, you've seen the wrestling clip about what a Windjammer is and like, mm. you know, so, you know, there are there are connotations and jokes and it does sound kind of funny. You know, what's a Windjammer? It's a cork you stick up your bum. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But this Neo Geo CD would address the biggest complaint about Neo Geo games, which is the cartridges cost up to 150 quid. And this would put it back in the 40 to 50 pound bracket. It was essentially the same base hardware, but with a CD drive instead of a cartridge port. Which are much cheaper to reproduce than it is to cartridge. Because I think of cartridges, they are bloody expensive to make. It's why Nintendo pushes its eShop even now. Because yeah, the cartridges are still there and available, but... There's much less of a... They make much more money when they sell the game for the same price on their eShop, put it that way. Mm -hmm. There were three versions of the Neo Geo CD released. There was a front-loading version, there was a top-loading version, and then there was the Neo Geo CDZ. Mm -hmm. And that was released because the Neo Geo CD had one key issue. It was slow. It was a single-speed CD drive and sometimes the game could be loading for 30 to 60 seconds. Yeah, it's not, you're not getting quite the arcade perfect uh, thing at home then. No, I mean, you're getting the arcade perfect once it loads, but you are going to be waiting a good chunk of time. It was always the worst thing when you were playing like Street Fighter on the PlayStation was you really lost momentum between bouts because you did have to wait for those loading times. Mm. They were going to try and address it for the American launch. They were going to produce a model with a double speed drive to try and kind of like fix the problem before it hit America. However, they discovered they'd made way too many single speed versions for Japan and that modifying them to be dual speed was more money than it was worth. So they just went, ah, fuck it. Just stick the single yeah. speed out. It's fine. And while the CDZ did only come out in Japan and did address the loading speed issue by using a dual speed CD-ROM, the fact it was region free did make it a very, very popular option for importers, both in America and Europe, because then you're getting the faster model and you could play games from wherever. THQ has gone fishing with the experts at BASS Inc. And the catch of the day is Bassmasters Classic for both Super Nintendo and Sega. It's a Oh, shut your mouth. If you even think about buying a game of this side, all your mates will come around your house and fight you. This last pit here is where I took my name from at the start of this because I got a proper kick out of THQ has gone fishing. Here's a fishing game for the snares. If you buy this, your mates are going to beat the shit out of you. Now, I'm a fisherman, as we've discussed, 
I will play a fishing mini game, like as part of Yakuza, as part of Zelda, as part of Persona. But any time I've tried to play an actual fishing game, they've all been shit. I will go to bat for Sega Bass Fishing on the Dreamcast. I really like that one. Okay, yeah, you're right on that one because that is an arcade game. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that is that is a fun game with a fun, goofy controller. But the Snares era, or even there's a course fishing one out on Xbox now, which you can get as part of Game Pass. And at least the ones now look pretty. But also, I'm just like, I'd rather be actually fishing because this is more complicated than actually going out and sitting on a river. One quick story from Sega Bass Fishing is when I was at university in my first and second year, I had long hair. I had hair that was down past my chest. And a friend of mine who was working at a toy shop across the road from Game Station said to me, what would it take for you to get you to shave your heads? And I said, for you to get a tattoo of the Sega Bass Fishing logo on your forearm. Two weeks later, he came round to my house with the Sega Bass Fishing tattoo on his forearm and, and with a pair of clippers was like, Time for that hair to go then. And that was it. And that was the last time I had long hair. He really wanted you to shave your head. I know, yeah. And he also really liked Sega Bass Fishing. Ah, see, that in that case, that was a foolish bet for you to make. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't think he was going to do it. Right, now no challenge would be complete without the bitter patter of Steve Merritt from Min Machines. Steve, how do you like your dolphin served? Popo's grilled. Oh, that sounds gorgeous, that does. And Steve, this dolphin turns into a seagull. When was the last time you saw that? Not for a week or two, I reckon. I reckon it's been that long for me as well. But Luke, from Bassmaster and a bunch of mouldy old fish to another mouldy old fish, we're finally at the Echo the Dolphin Challenge. Even five episodes in, this whole introduce challenge, news, and then challenge, it still feels a little weird to me. I think it's very much from, for us, it feels weird podcasting about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I just can't get over how inconsiderate people were in 1994 to podcasters. It's like they didn't even know we existed. Well, yeah, I mean, come on, guys. Where's the fucking masters? for this so i'm not using like third generation grainy ass to download from youtube so selfish i like steve Merritt on this show also the drugs were excellent in 1994 <laughs> yeah. so we were saying earlier when it comes to this challenge that basically there's a bit in this when you turn into the seagull and you fly over a rock if you don't get that first time you're more than likely not going to finish this challenge because robert who is up first gets hit by the bird he gets to like he turns to a seagull with you know 15 seconds on the clock and he gets caught by the bird boom and he gets hits and struck back down in the water which means he needs to turn to the seagull again and get past the albatross so with his time remaining when he gets to the teleport he's only got 18 seconds left and then you've got effectively the mega drive load screen which takes four seconds so he's only got 14 seconds then to get through the waves of the ocean to get to the rings which take forever and a day to come up. So you need, well, I mean, way more than 12 seconds before you get into that final portion if you're ever going to finish this, because this lad runs out of time. Yeah, he absolutely bottlenoses it. He just doesn't make it at all. Was that a dolphin pun? It was a dolphin pun. <laughs> but no, it is a case of you get hit by a bird and this challenge is, it's biffed. It's like encountering springs in Sonic the Hedgehog or not getting the mushroom power up in a Mario challenge. You may as well just fall down a gap or run into a badnik or, you know, jump into a fishing net in the case of this one. You may as well just get it over with. It is kind of painful to watch it going, nah, mate, you're not going to make it. I've not seen anyone do this challenge, but I already know you're not going to make it. As the second he goes through that teleporter and you see how far off the first ring is, that was when I was like, 
he ain't doing this. There is a cat in hell's chance, hell being the operative word uh, for this setting, cat in hell's chance he's making it through to this. Oh, Desmond goes, I think he made it through two rings, but Robert's challenge is over and he must make way for Adam. Okay, best of luck, Adam. Your one minute starts now. So Adam is up next and Steve gives him the very, very good advice, which is that when you get to the albatross, stay high. Because if you stay high, you effectively fly over the albatross as it swoops down to try and grab you. Adam doesn't quite do that. He still stays low. But through some jammy, just stroke of luck, he gets hit by the bird. He then gets hit by another bird. He bounces off that bird over the rock that he's trying to get past and just flails into the water. It's an incredible stroke of luck. It's so jammy because it's not that he's a better games player. He literally whiffed it. He just locked out. The physics engine went his way. Yeah, he made the exact same mistake that Robert did, only this time it worked in his favour. Absolutely jammy bugger. And so then he gets through the teleporter to get to the final ring stages with 33 seconds left on the clock. And he absolutely gets all three of them with 13 seconds left. That one moment basically got him this challenge and got him the golden joystick. Now, Robert, you lost quite a lot of time in the middle. What happened? There's this seagull bit kept on getting knocked back down. Bird trouble. Yeah. I think that was what it was. Uh, Adam, what can I say? You are the ring king. Yeah, um, but you were a bit lucky about halfway through there, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was a bit fortunate when I was flying up the rock. The bird at the uh, top caught me and I flew down. But you you managed to fly the other way. No, instead, you're obviously blessed. We go into the post-match and Dom sums up Robert's issue as bird trouble. And to be honest, that's fair enough because at that sort of age, you don't know what to do with them when you get them. And before you know it, you're kind of falling down a bunch of rocks. Makes absolute sense. Adam, on the other hand, is a ring king. Yeah, he punctured three rings in succession. Very advanced for his age. Why did we get so filthy so quickly? (laughs) Because Dominic Diamond called him a ring king. That is true. It's Dom's fault. Every single time you and I go like, why do we start making meth jokes about Games Master? It's always Dominic Diamond's fault. And when we got filthy in season three, it was also Dom's fault because he wasn't there. We had to fill a void. Diamondism. Dom, it's your fault. (laughs) Dom, it's your fault, mate. But even Adam has to admit that he was just lucky with how he fell from the bird attack. He's not trying to claim he's a superior games player. He's like, no, mate, do you see how jammy I was? And that's good to see as well. Like, absolutely just being upfront and honest. Yeah, I totally lucked into that win. First up, from the film that spawned that Elton John single, the Lion King game tries to apologise. Lion King is easily the best Disney licence yet. Not only is it fabulous characterisation, there's also a lot of interaction, not only with the jungle scenery, but also with other jungle animals, like you have to jump on giraffes' heads and swing from rhinos' tails. And there's some lovely puzzle elements too, involving monkeys. I'll leave it at that at the moment. The same animators that actually made the film have had a hand in making the game. Um, You can tell this by the quality of the animation. It is absolutely superb. It's um, probably a bit of a disappointment to people who are expecting something special. Um, Where it really excels is graphics and sound. The animation's superb and the music's excellent. But other than that, it's pretty much the same as everything else. This first game in the reviews can go fuck itself. The Lion King on the Mega Drive. I uh, never owned this game, but I did borrow it. Good friggin' lord. I hate it. 
because it's frustrating as fuck, but it's really fun. And it's so fun that it makes me want to keep playing it. I now own a copy of it and I've played it a lot. When we had a uh, our YouTube channel Screen Stalker, which uh, unfortunately fell apart, I, uh, I played this. I reviewed The Lion King, the 2019 remake, while playing this game. I'm going to play a quick montage of what happened there, because it's just me swearing over and over again as I keep fucking dying on that level. I want to be quick on them. Take your time, take your time. Oh, you know what? Come on! Why? Goddamn hippo asses. Killed it! Oh, yeah. Kiss my ass. Oh, shut Oh, God! Grab a gun! God damn it. No! Game. <laughs> and I didn't like The Lion King 2019 either. I can tell how much you hate it because normally I'm the one taking the lion's share of the uh, of the swear jar noises here. But no, you are you are turning that Serengeti sky blue in your language right now. <laughs> yeah, for a movie that's so red and yellow, I have made things very blue. It's a good game, though. I mean, I'm, I'm here, you know, swearing up a storm. And, like, it is good, though. And it, it's well worthy of the 87% it gets here. And whereas previous kind of, like, very successful Disney adaptations had very much relied on the work of Dave Perry. No, not that Dave Perry. The other Dave Perry. Not a journalist. I'm a marketing manager. And his team that would go on to form Shiny Entertainment. This one, they actually just went straight to the source and went, Disney animators could you just do the animation for us and we'll digitize it? Because this was developed by Westwood Studios in most part. They just took actual animation that was made by the Disney feature animation department, digitized it, colored it, scaled it down. It looks fantastic. Looks amazing. And that's kind of, you know, what they're talking about in this review here. Like Tim Tucker saying this is the best Disney licensed game. Adrian putting over the animation. It's Frank O'Connor that's our Debbie Downer here playing the role of Jazz Rignall saying that, yeah, it looks nice, it sounds nice, but apart from that, it's the same as every other platforming game. But there was an Amiga version of this, came out for the Amiga 1200. It was developed in two months. That's a tight turnaround. And the developer, Dave Simmons, only agreed to do it if he got the Mega Drive source code because he assumed that the game would be programmed in 68K assembly. Since the Amiga and the Genesis, they share the same CPU family, which is also why Mega Drive to Amiga and Amiga to Mega Drive ports can often work so well. However, it wasn't. It was written in C, which he was completely unfamiliar with. Therefore, it is quite amazing that it turned out as well as it did. And by that, I mean actually existed. Now, I know a lot of people uh, will have some form of... Um... PTSD having played this game particularly on that just can't wait to be king level in fact actually it became um somewhat of a meme recently because there's a twitch streamer called story mode bay who posted up this video of her playing this game for the very first time and she is a modern day gamer she's you know probably in like a 
uh, late teens, early 20s, right? And so she played this game for the very first time because it was part of that Mega Drive re-release that they did where they had like Aladdin and The Lion King for the PlayStation and the, the Xbox and whatnot. It was actually a very piss poor release of both of those games. And she didn't realize that like when you got game over, that was it. You went right back to the start of the game. Oh, I, I, every time I jump, you throw me back. I... Okay, it has to be quick. Okay, okay, we're back, we're back. Throw me up. Alley oop me, yup. Let me look over here. Oh my god, this is. Game over? What do you mean, game over? What do you mean, game over? What do you mean? And she just could not fathom this because she was just like, where's the respawn? It was this sort of like mind blowing thing because you had a lot of younger gamers like her that were just like, this game is far too hard. And a lot of older gamers like myself being like, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? This is what it was like, but it was designed that way. It was designed to be that way. Louis Castle of the development team told DevPlay, the rental market was that if people got a certain distance in the game, metrics from Disney said, they would not buy the game. At that time, Blockbuster had a rental program that had just come out, and Disney had a rule across all of its products where you could not get past a certain percentage of the game in a certain period of time. So the only level in the early levels where we had the ability, in the 11th hour literally, to make it longer and more complicated, it was the monkey puzzle at the end of level 2. Apologies to everyone who pulled their hair out over it, including myself. It was a Disney demand that that level be harder simply for the rental markets, which is incredible. See, and people think Disney have only become money-grabbing shit houses recently. They've been doing it for decades. Next up, little blokes in helmets throw stuff at each other. No, it's not a criminal justice bill march. It's Mega Bomberman. With four players, you can run around the mazes bombing each other to your heart's content. Or play the adventure mode where you just rush through the various levels, defeating the end of level bosses. It has simple graphics, simple sound, but you don't need anything special. It's the gameplay that counts, and this has it in bucket loads. At the start of the battle mode, you can actually choose what sort of character you're going to look like. You can either have a big roly-poly geezer, or you can have a tiny little one, or you can even have a policeman. It has no relevance on the game and how the players play, but it, it just looks Great. As a one-player game, it doesn't seem to stand up so well. I mean, it's still fun, but it really is a multiplayer game. Get as many mates around as you can, grab a joypad, and have a great game. You'll be there all night. With Mega Bomberman, Tim Tucker talks about how, yeah, the single player is fun, but really this is a multiplayer experience. You want to be getting four players around your house so you can have, you know, the multi-tap fun with this. So it's a bit of a shame that we could have had eight-player Mega Bomberman on the Mega Drive because it was pitched by Factor 5. They presented to Hudson Soft, hey, look, we're going to make this eight-player Bomberman. And Hudson were like, nah, mate, we're just going to do a straight port of Bomberman 94 and because that would be the much cheaper way of doing it. Factor 5, from what I was doing some research into them, appeared to be sort of like the, the forgotten would-be porters of the Mega Drive because they also did a great port of Super Castlevania 4 for the Mega Drive, including all of the Mode 7 stuff that Sega didn't want. And they also did a great port of the Indiana Jones trilogy that was on the SNES that Sega did not want. 
I'm thinking like, why don't you want these, Sega? These look like really good ports. It's so weird that they didn't, particularly because that Castlevania port could have been a real feather in Sega's crown because it's like, oh, Mode 7, something that you've got that we don't. Oh, look. We can literally do it on the Mega Drive or the Genesis. We can literally do it on our platform and it looks pretty good. I mean, we did get a Castlevania game on the Mega Drive, uh, the new generation, which I really like, actually. Bloodlines, I think it was in the States. Uh, my mate Craig had this game when we were nippers. Um, I don't know if he got this in 94 or if he got this in 95, but I remember playing it around at his house and kind of being, you know, um, Adrian's talking about like the roster of characters that you can pick and how like it has no bearing on the game itself, but it, you know, adds a bit of color and a bit of variety to the game. I remember being sort of like obsessed with this idea of the different characters and trying to find out like what their backstories were and sort of like what each character was this that, and the other i think i sort of you know i got more into that than i did actually playing bomberman and this is a really really good port of bomberman from the pc engine it is and it wouldn't be the last time this game gets ported across either because it would later appear on the wii virtual console the ps3 playstation network do hickory it was also released for the psp the playstation portable and they did a mobile phone port in 2008 Bomberman on a mobile in 2008. Now, I know mobile gaming is a big thing now. I see you, Pokemon Go. I see you, Candy Crush. I see you. What are the kids playing today, Luke? Um, oh, I know. Actually, they sponsor us. They sponsor us in our videos. What the bloody hell is it called? Raid Shadow Legends. That's the one. See, we're with it. We're still <laughs> hip. But I'm trying to imagine playing Bomberman on a phone in 2008. It's not a great vision in my head. I've no idea how it was received. Finally, loads of dodgy actors ham it up on CDI Cluedo, but is the game itself a crime? There are three scenarios on Cluedo on the CDI. Each one has its own dedicated piece of FMV. Um, there are lots of character shots of each of the characters, like Colonel Mustard, Mrs. White, um, and basically, once you've seen all these, you know, it starts to get a bit boring. Tedious in the extreme. You have to wait while all this video goes on instead of just making the next move. And um, frankly, if you're sat playing board games on your telly, I think you really need to have a word with yourself. Cluedo's a great game, but why bother playing it on the CDI? No, all you get is some NAS footage and carry-on extras. Sorry. And as a game, it doesn't really get any better. The only thing that I could say in its favour is that you don't have to clear up the board after you. And last up, we have Cluedo on the CDI. Not a huge amount to say about this, unfortunately, other than this is why the CDI didn't sell particularly well, because it was <laughs> like this. Yeah, you know, 51% for Cluedo on the CDI. I mean, the overall takeaway is you may as well just play the board game. You may as well just play the board game, although in the board game, you don't get Joan Sims of Carry On fame playing Mrs. White. It did have a little bit of a cast, and amazingly, it had a sequel. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did a fair number of these sort of Cluedo games, yeah. Yeah, there were three mysteries on the first one, the one that's being reviewed here, The Hooded Madonna, Happy Ever After, and Deadly Patent. And then the second one, called Cluedo, The Mystery Continues, had Road to Damascus, Blackmail, and Not in My Backyard. <laughs> Which sounds like an Abe Simpson line. Well, that is enough review chat. Let's get into a celebrity challenge, and we're kicking off another FIFA tournament. Oh, sorry, spoilers. What are we playing, Games Master? My next challenge is on the soccer game FIFA 95, the follow-up to the classic FIFA International. It's a game of two halves, and I expect all players to give 110%. Over to you, Brian. At Games Master, once again asking for 110%, knowing full well 
That's, That's impossible. impossible. Did you skip back and forth in your episode to try and find out if they'd mentioned this earlier? Because they are acting in this episode like, well, this is a thing you knew was coming. And us watching it in 2021 are going, no, we didn't. Yeah, it feels like there was a link at the end of episode four that would have been next week starts a FIFA 95 tournament. But we never had that. So it is weird to Dominic Dime to be like, oh, yeah, here's that tournament you were all expecting. I do know there are still a few bits and pieces missing from some of the captures and rips that we have. Uh, Sometimes end title sequences are taken from other episodes and stuff to patch it up. So maybe, maybe there was something. Maybe it was put in continuity trailers. Maybe there was some extra information there. Maybe it was on the the Games Master bulletin board system. Maybe that's where all the cool news was. Was there anything in the magazine? Like, what was the, the, is it called the network section or something like that, where they talk about, like, upcoming episodes? Well, I mean, the network section is the news section, essentially. But they did did tag it on to the end of that. And I've checked the issue we're currently on, which is the October issue, and it's not in that. And so I thought, well, I'll skip ahead, because sometimes things got a little confused and messed around. And there's nothing in the November issue. In fact, pretty much the only connection now to the TV show in both of those issues is Dom's big purple column. But we also know from speaking to Dom and hearing from others that season four was arguably just as chaotic behind the scenes as season three, just in a different way. So maybe there was a disconnect there. Maybe that's why we didn't get the promo. Maybe that's why it was just kind of dropped on us. It's not unwelcome because FIFA challenges, particularly celebrity ones, can be fun. I seem to think that I had FIFA 95. I mean, I definitely had FIFA International Soccer. I can't remember whether I got FIFA 95 the following year or whether or not a friend of ours had it and we borrowed their copy. But I do remember playing the game. There wasn't a massive difference between the release of FIFA 94 and FIFA 95, apart from the fact that it's now got club teams in it. And impressively, it's got club teams from all around the world as well, like the Bundesliga and, you know, this, that and the other. So that was quite cool because, yeah, the first one literally was just national teams. So this one felt like a more complete package. I mean, one of the big new features that FIFA 95 did bring to the table was something that most England fans just absolutely dread. And that is the penalty shootout as a way to resolve draws. That's really cool. I don't recall ever getting into that moment, but that is a really cool feature. Previous FIFA had actually just gone with next goal wins at the end of extra time, so they had a sudden death mode. And for our first semi-final, we're in a scorer-stopper situation. Please welcome Andy Cole and Casey Keller. Now, Andy, I'll talk to you first of all. You're famous for your partnership with Peter Beardsley, Mm -hmm. right? Tell us in your own words what you think about Peter's dress sense. Well, as a team, I think his dress sense is rather okay. <laughs> That's just so you make sure you get the passes. I've got this theory he gets dressed by his mum, though. Is that true? Well, I think you're going to ask that. It's Peter and his mum, there. <laughs> no, I only ask these things if Peter's not here. That's, that's what I'm like. Now, uh, Casey, have you ever played against uh, Andy before? Did you meet him in the, in the first division yeah, at all? we played together uh, against each other at Bristol one time, then when he signed for Newcastle down at the Den. So, yeah, we met each other a couple of times. And uh, what happened? Did, did you get any against Casey that time, Andy? Uh, the first time we lost 1-0. Uh, Casey saved me penalty, and then the second time I got revenge. Beat him 2-1, and I scored the winner. And our football celebrities playing the game this week are Andy Cole and Casey Keller, two footballers that I am not particularly au fait with. Like I, as names, they don't jump out to me as football players from the 90s that I recognize. 
Andy Cole is mostly remembered for his time with Man United, and even that is mostly because they paid an immense record-setting transfer fee to sign him from Newcastle United. And he spent six years with Man U and helped them win eight major trophies. He won the treble of the Premier, the FA and the UEFA Champions League in 99. He had a long old career, 1988 to 2008. Yeah, he's the name that I probably recognise the most because I think he played for England as well. It is not like the uh, the big names because I think Vinnie Jones is in this tournament again. He's not like of a Vinnie Jones level of like, that is a celebrity slash footballer. No, I mean, you're right. He did play for England. He was capped 15 times between 95 and 2001. But during that time, only scored once against Albania in a 2002 World Cup qualifier. Yeah, I think he was very much a bench player, if I remember correctly. But in addition to Man U and Newcastle United, he also spent time with Arsenal, Blackburn Rovers, Fulham, Man City, Portsmouth and Sunderland, as well as dropping down to the Football League for Bristol City, Birmingham City, Burnley and Not Forest. Although third highest goal scorer in Premier League history, 187 goals. Is that right? That seems insane. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming it's right. I am literally just reading off his Wikipedia because as we firmly established, Luke, we are not football people. No, but like, man, the third highest goal scorer in Premier League history. That's like, I mean, blow me down. If that's right, bugger me. Like, I am surprised beyond all surprised. Apparently also holds the Premier League record for most goals scored in a 42-game season, 34, and fastest to score 50 goals, which he did in 65 matches. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. Alan Shearer, Wayne Rooney, then Andy Cullen, Sergio Aguero, Frank Lampard, Thierry Henry. Like, having more goals than Terry Henry seems absolutely insane to me. Having more goals than Fowler, having more goals than Michael Owen just seems absolutely balmy. So yeah, he's not that much of a common name to me. He's not that much of a common name to you. But I think that reflects more on us than it does on him. Because clearly, absolutely, dude was a player in both the literal and figurative sense. Casey Keller, however, threw me for a loop as soon as he opened his mouth. He's Canadian, isn't he? He's American. Oh, he's American. He is American. He's a four-time FIFA World Cup participant and was the first American goalkeeper to become a regular in the German Bundesliga, the English Premier League and the Spanish La Liga. Yeah, he seems to be a bit of a journeyman uh, football player. Like, I think he's playing for Millwall at this point. And I'm only getting that from the commentary that the um, that we get for this match. We already made our quote to a Millwall jokes before, so we'll leave that where it lies. Also, the we can leave that for the commentary team when we get to this football match coming up. Yeah, they've got way more better time jokes than us on that one. But he played there and became a fan favourite there between 1992 when he signed and 1996 when he left. He made 202 appearances for them and he was voted Player of the Year in 92-93 by their fans. When they were relegated to the second division, the team transferred Keller to Leicester City for a cool £900,000 in August of 1996. And interestingly, and perhaps this isn't so much a Millwall joke as just a indicator of their fan base, he was studying for a sociology degree by correspondence when he played for Millwall and wrote a paper on the club's hooligans. That's cool, man. That's that's the sort of thing that can get you a job as a profiler at the FBI. Also, just sociology degrees are not something I readily kind of associate with football players. 
But but rock on. It's like the old wrestler thing. Always have a backup. And speaking of plan B's, Peter Beardsley is this week's target to be dunked upon because I I, I really like Andy Cole in in this interview that he's got with Dominic Diamond here because Dominic's got his target this week and that is Peter Beardsley and he's trying to dunk him and Andy Cole is very good at sort of like palming off, be like, no, I think he dresses all right actually. And Dominic's like, oh no, I think his mum dresses him. And Andy's cute, cool as a cucumber, just goes. Well, that's between him and his mum. And Dom, though, doesn't let it immediately go. He's like, well, yeah, but they're not here and you are. Yeah, I, I quite like Andy Cole in all of this. And they have a bit of like banter back and forth about, you know, playing each other in the past and things like that. So, I mean, this is, this is pretty good. But like the Andy Cole thing has, has thrown me for a loop, to be honest. A, because I didn't recognize him when he was on screen. And it's only sitting here now. I'm like, oh, bloody hell, of course, Andy Cole. I know that name. That is a name I very much recognize. I don't know why I didn't recognize him in the three times that I watched this episode or the three times I was taking notes while watching this episode. It's almost like it was almost 30 years ago, Luke. Well, yeah, maybe it is. And like football is is not on my mind. I mean, football is on my mind. It's coming home at the time we're recording. Although by the time you hear this, it will have either come home or gone somewhere else, depending on how we do in two days time. <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, I enjoyed these two, actually. And Casey seems cool because he's American also just exotic because he's an American football player, but not an American football player. He's an American football player. Yeah. And you don't get that many of those over here. Certainly not that rise to the heights that he did. No, the 90s in particular. Well, will Andy get revenge on Casey tonight? We'll find out after the break. We want to be saving the pennies. I want to be splashing out on smoked salmon and champagne. We want to be tightening those purse strings. I want to be wined and dined in Paris or Rome. We might want to be decorating the spare bedroom. I want to be painting the town. With a new Prudence long-term savings account, you can vary the amount you save each month or even take a break should you unexpectedly need to. We want to be having a Bible. Be what you want to be with the flexibility of a prudent savings account. Break control! Set play, bending, brilliant! Precise pass, goal! Fast and fluent! Crashing shot, smashing save! FIFA Soccer 95 for Sega Mega Drive! Dynamite Drive! If it's in the game, E. Sports, it's in the game. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Look at the state of this. What am I going to do? Wear the white one. The white one? I'll wash it myself. Bye-bye. For everything you wash today, Persil Automatic is all you could want from a powder. Persil Automatic, now with 10% extra, free. After years away, the wandering Ribena Berry finally returned. To discover his beloved Ribena was even better than he remembered. That's because it is better. We've crammed in even more juicy blackcurrants to give you an even richer Ribena. So it's even more delicious and still full of vitamin C goodness. Ah, he thought, I'm truly home. Come home to a new, richer, juicier Ribena. final of our FIFA 95 challenge. We're lucky enough to have Andy Cole and Casey Keller in the hot seat. Doing his best, Trevor Bruton. Beside me is Simon Byron from The One. Simon, tell me about some of the improvements that FIFA 95's got over its predecessor. Well, one of the criticisms of the original FIFA was that the passing was a bit hit and miss sometimes, so that's been tweaked to make it more accurate. Okay, so it will reward the passing game? Definitely. Not much hope for Millwall's Casey Keller then. <laughs> Back from the break, and Simon Barrett from The One is in the booth to do his best Trevor Brooker in impersonation and he, he's here to talk about the biggest improvement for FIFA 95 which is the passing we will not see a lot of that passing. I mean literally they say you're not going to see a lot of passing from Casey Keller from from Millwall basically there to make a Millwall joke but he effectively proves them right because he never passes the fucking ball while playing this challenge I don't think that's necessarily reflective on him because let's be honest most of us casuals playing FIFA we don't pass the ball do we we get it to a player that we're comfortable with, we run him up the field, and we punt it at the goal. We apply schoolyard tactics to international football. Yeah, and it it's, comes back on the commentators a little bit because we had this in Series 3 as well during the FIFA tournament then where they were like, you can't shoot from the halfway line. This isn't like sensible soccer. You're not going to score from the halfway line. And then Vinnie Jones scores from the halfway line, like scores from the kickoff. And here, like, it's like, oh man, the biggest improvement of this game is the passing. You're going to see like some really good passing in this game. And then, because you're right, you don't really pass when you're playing these games. Neither man. Andy Cole is the only one who passes. And every time he passes, it fucks up for him. So I think Casey's the one who's got the right idea here. Although you have to give Andy credit for actually trying to play the game of football as opposed to the game of run and punt. Dominic Diamond, in our interview, we are going to keep mentioning it. Also mentioned production errors. They have spelled Casey's name wrong up on screen. It's a thing. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't actually watched episode seven yet. Spoilers, Casey wins. I haven't watched episode seven yet, so I'm curious to see whether they fix that mistake for when he returns for the final. The challenge does get underway. Andy is Newcastle. Casey is playing as Seattle. 
which is where he's from, and also a team he would later play for. I also figured they picked that as well because it's like the closest colours they could get for Millwall in the game, which I thought was quite a nice little touch, actually. Like, it's sort of like three different things that come together quite nicely there. Yeah, the closest the colours could get. And he's from that area, but also then ended up playing for... Ooh, maybe we should do a paper on him. But anyway, Casey does control the game to begin with and gets first run on goal. But Andy gets the first solid shot. Casey takes control of the ball again and keeps control for most of the first half, getting in a few shots of his own that are on target, but easily saved. You'd have thought a goalkeeper would have known how to defeat a goalkeeper, really. But it goes back and forth. It's a fairly short half, and it's one that ends in nil-nil. And the second half is, I mean, Andy gets proper screwed in this second half, I, I, I do want to add. He also gets caught out a couple of times as well, where he effectively keeps hoofing it back up his own half. And the reason he keeps hoofing it back up his own half is because he is pressing the button to tackle, only the ball ends up at his feet, which means that he is then hoofing it up the field thinking he's going to tackle, but it actually then got possession and does the other thing. And that kind of causes him a foul a couple of times. And then he does a foul and Casey's caused him the free kick. Screaming free kick, by the way. Absolutely awesome. But here's where I think Andy gets screwed. This is a 45 second half. Mm -hmm. Casey scores with 24 seconds left on the clock. But that timer keeps counting down while Casey uh, celebrates, while the game shows you the score, while the game then reloads everything. Well, the game gets back up, and before you know it, Andy's only got five seconds left to have a, have a crack at goal. He loses 20 seconds of this half through celebrations. Hey, do they pause the clock in real football when people are resetting or making celebrations or whatever? You're absolutely right. But if you've only got 45 seconds per half, you've effectively lost half of the half through just one celebration. Yeah, but we've also only got 24 minutes per show, Luke. <laughs> yeah. I think Andy was hard done by here by the rules. Screwed or otherwise, it's a game of two halves. The second one is over and Casey does take that decisive 1-0 victory. Well, Casey, tell us about that free kick. I came out of nowhere. Oh, Branko from the World Cup, signed him up, got him to Seattle, hits the free kick, wins the game. It was just that in Seattle, a bit reminiscent of Millwall there where the set-piece goes. Oh, of course, no problem. <laughs> Happen all the time. <laughs> now, Andy, for some bizarre reason, you lacked a killer instinct up front, really. I did, yeah. I was a bit disappointing, you know. Um, teammates let me down for the first time, but not today. And that Peter Beersley, I blame him. I won't blame him. It's a team game, you know. Yeah, one of his off games, he thought he was playing for England. That was definitely it. <laughs> I always enjoy it when footballers on this show treat it seriously and talk about it as if it's a real sport. I, I really, really like that. Dom is like, oh, yeah, no killer instinct. It's that Beardsley's fault. You should blame him. I'm yep. going for Peter Beardsley. <laughs> So yeah, we'll see Casey again in two weeks' time. I've kind of like let you know the, the the cat out of the bag. Vinnie Jones is back again next week, looking for his uh, unprecedented third golden joystick. I can't remember who he's facing off against though. So I'm kind of I'm I'm looking forward to to reviewing next week's episodes. Games master, I'm having real difficulty getting off the first level of time tracks on the snares. I really need some help. I may have a little something to ease your pain. On level one, when you enter the room after blowing out the wall, you will see a key just below you. Collect this and keep travelling until you reach the trap door. Jump up at it and the key will automatically be used, opening up a room full of useful items. These may help you get a little bit further. Okay? Thanks, 
games master. You're a lifesaver. I remember back, it must it was either in series two or it's in series three. I've got a feeling it's in series two when you said, I've never seen such an actor in the consultation zone. Because they are a proper like, cool, blimey, governor. I'd love a little hint if I possibly could on the old time tracks on the Super Nintendo. This kid is acting up a storm badly. Yeah, and speaking of acting them badly, time tracks. Do you remember time tracks? I do not remember time tracks whatsoever. Although it has got an X in its name, so it must be cool. Oh, it must be cool. It is peak 1993. It's an American-Australian co-production. There's a combo you don't get too often. You don't hear that every day. It was created by Half Bennett, Jeffrey Hayes and Grant Rosenberg. Rosenberg came up with the original idea which Bennett and Hayes helped craft into the final premise and it was one of the first three original, using original in bunny ears because there is very little original about this product, it was one of the first three original programs of the Prime Time Entertainment Network alongside Babylon 5. Babylon 5's a big pile of shit. <laughs> Get out! Yay! And Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. Is it really? And it ran for a year because despite it being actually relatively well received by viewers, the network cancelled it because they wanted to go in a different direction to increase their viewer base. Because as we established on our bonus episode on the X-Files, genre just doesn't sell. It's very rare, does it? But despite being set in Washington, D.C., it was filmed in Queensland, Australia, and essentially... It's kind of like Time Cop, but PG-13. And there was a video game of it. Can't say much about the game, other than a Mega Drive version was developed and completed and actually reviewed, but was never released. Although a fully finished prototype was found and released in 2013. So it is out there. You can play Time Tracks on the Mega Drive if you wish. If you really, really want to. I have found um, a lot of it, uh, Time Tracks, is on YouTube, if you are into that sort of thing. I don't know whether we want to do it as yeah, UCP Extra at some point soon, but it does look proper cheap. I, I do think that we should definitely do more 90s genre fiction as bonus episodes. Time Tracks is an option. Babylon 5 is definitely an option. We've also got the various flavors of Trek, and, as I think was mentioned on at least of one of our X-Files Patreon bonus episodes, Baywatch Nights. Yeah, Baywatch would be a really fun one to do. Games Master, last week you gave me a cheat for level select on Jungle Book for the SNES. But when I put it in, it took away all my energy and left me with 10 seconds to complete a level. And laughed at me. Well, I could say that serves you right for wanting to cheat. But as you're obviously so pathetic at the game, I'll have mercy and give you the real level select. Make your way to the prickly pears at the bottom of level one and jump off to your death. Just before hitting those most unforgiving of fruits, pause the game. Now type bag, crab, lard, ball, curve. And you'll be given access to a wondrous level select menu. Now go away. I only want the best games for you, here. All right, Games Master. Cheers. Now, we teed this up last week. Our second kid is back once again like a renegade master, being like, Oi, that cheat you gave me took away all my life and only 10 seconds to beat the level, and it laughed at me. So Games Master is here to give him the real level select code, which is actually the debug menu, where you can then access a level, this, that, and the other. And what I like about this is not that it's the debug mode, 
not that it is pretty complex to get there. You've got to jump into the, you know, the specific area, like just before you die, press pause. It's the fact that Games Master gives the hint as bad crab lard ball curl. That has never been done on Games Master yet. I do love the swerve of this. I do love that I gave you a fake cheat. Because, man, can you imagine all the kids actually entering that cheat on this game and then going, what? what? Where's my where's my health? Where's my time? What's going on? And then next week, ah, suckers, you were trying to cheat. I, I don't watch ahead a lot, so I don't know if this kid returns again. It'd be great if he returns again next week being like, Oi, Games Master, what the hell is bad crab lad ball curl? What are you trying to say about me? <laughs> Games Master, I can kill everything on Tempest 2000 in the Atari Jaguar. I really like the bonus levels, but is there any way of getting straight to them? Here's the rules. Turn on your system while holding buttons 1, 4 and 7. Still holding the buttons, select the game you wish to play, and you hear a rather pleasant voice congratulate you on having activated the cheat. Now, when playing, press button six. You'll be granted access to those spectral bonus levels. Out of this world, man. Thanks a lot, Games Master. Oh, we haven't had a chance to talk about Tempest 2000 much on this show because it sort of came and went with our Jaguar releases of stuff. But it is, for my money, the best game available on the Jaguar with um, uh, AVP coming in a close second. Tempest 2000 was a game that I played quite a bit when I was at university because a friend of mine had a Jaguar before I got mine. And he had Tempest 2000 for it. And we used to, because the soundtrack's awesome for it. And we used to play quite a bit of Tempest 2000s. I mean, thankfully, if you hadn't bought a Jaguar and you actually bought a console that was, you know, good... You could still play Tempest 2000 because it was ported to a number of them, including the Saturn, the PlayStation, as well as ports for MS-DOS, Macintosh and Windows. And it is widely regarded as one of the best games released for the Jaguar, selling in excess of 30,000 copies during its lifetime. I don't know how that compares to the amount of Jaguars sold in a lifetime, but I imagine that's, that's doing fairly well. I think that's doing pretty well for itself. Because it's, it's not a mainstream game. It's not. It's very much a hardcore one. And in fact, when Jeff Minter produced this game and first demoed it, he was approached by one of the creators of the Jaguar at the launch party for the Jaguar and basically dressed down for Tempest 2000 because the creator felt that it was a poor demonstration of the Jaguar's capabilities. And at that point, Minter hadn't actually finished Tempest 2000. So this guy was basically coming up to him and going, that game you're pouring your heart and soul into that's one of your favourites. That's shit. Crikey. He didn't let it dissuade him. He continued to develop it until the game was finished. And also he regarded the Jaguar as a very easy platform to develop for, which I think goes to show that Jeff Minter is dagging him east. Yeah. Four stops on from barking. I see. The game was very well received and sold a lot. One common criticism was the lack of a rotary controller, similar to that on the original arcade machine and the way that you could originally play it. And the game was actually made with an option to use a controller like that, but it only existed as a prototype and was never released. So hmm. so essentially, as released, the optimal way to play Tempest 2000 was never made available to its audience. Instead, you had that Jaguar controller hear about that controller a little bit when you talk about this hints because you know you when you boot it up you hold down one four and seven and then you press button six to activate the cheat menu and stuff and it's just like it's such a crap controller man hearing 
the instructions to hold one, four, and seven doesn't sound like a game cheat. It sounds like you're doing kind of some phone freaking or hacking or something, or you're trying to get root your Android device. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. This month sees the release of Double Dragon 5, the latest game featuring martial arts brothers Billy and Jimmy Lee, and their now increasingly tedious struggle against the Shadow Master. Over in America, though, punters are bracing themselves for a new development in the saga, Double Dragon, the movie. 2007. Los Angeles. The city has changed. Cops rule the day. Punks rule the night. One man wants to rule them all. And who's out to stop him? None other than our tidy haircut pals, Jimmy and Billy. They battle against blokes with dog poo around their neck for possession of the legendary Double Dragon medallion. It's a dragon! They meet strangely unfrightening villains who've obviously had one too many isotonic Lucas Aids. Oh, great. The power core. They also team up with a gang of young fashion casualties led by the quite fit bird Marion. Team Lee. Need any help? Birds fight birds, birds fight blokes, and blokes fight ugly blokes. And indeed, no plate glass window is left unbroken as our heroes scream a lot and everything in the whole world blows up. Double Dragon opens in America next month and in Britain next spring. I can hardly wait. Let's have some fun. Bit of a double bubble feature here because not only are we talking about Double Dragon 5, we are talking about, and this is actually a first for Games Master as well, a video game movie adaptation is being shown on this show. Double Dragon, the movie. We get the trailer for it here. Despite the fact it's not going to come out in the UK until November 1995, so 13 months after this episode aired, a first look here at the Double Dragon movie, which is not very good. I'm conflicted on this feature because when I saw this and I went, Double Dragon, the movie, yes, please. I want to talk about this. I do want to talk about this, but you and I also know that when we do get to do Lights, Camera, Game Over as part of our Patreon rewards, this is one that I really want to talk about on that. And I don't want to kind of give it all away here because it is a fun and interesting movie to talk about. It's got a hell of a cast in it as well. I really, really wanted to do this as a chapter in the book, but I only got one interview for it. And I couldn't put together a complete enough story based on the one interview that I got. And really, like when it came down to doing the book, uh, my kind of thought process behind it was like, if I get one interview, it's off the table. Like if I get none, then I definitely am I'm not doing it. Um, if I could kind of put together like, you know, the Max Payne chapter, I think I did based on one interview. But that guy was able to tell like the full story of how that movie got made. Whereas like Neil Shusterman, who I, who was credited for the story, was one half of the credited story writers. Uh, he was the person that I spoke to. He could only really tell me his story, which was I got involved. I wrote a story. Here's what I did. They then went with Paul Dini and I got story credit for arbitration. That's pretty much all I could get from for, for a gleam from it. So I didn't actually get to write the full chapter out, but which I really would have liked. A, because it's Paul Dini. It's Mark Dacascos. It's Alyssa Milano. Like, there's some really interesting names within Double Dragon. And it's really interesting names who don't want to talk about it. I think it's a shame. I, we've talked about it with Dex. 
you know, that they've got these periods of time or these things that they did that they just don't want to talk about. And it's like, mate, look back on it. Look where your career is now. And in the case of a lot of them, their career now is pretty good. And they had a pretty storied career after it. I'd say the only person that maybe has anything really to regret with this film is Robert Patrick and that hairdo. Oh, yeah. The Vanilla Ice 1000. Yeah. (laughs) Silicon graphics were used to render that hairdo. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I would happily go and talk about this, you know, if I, if it was part of my career, because I'm sure there were stories from the set, because one thing I will give this film credit for is the sets look great. Yeah, that's really nice. And there was some amazing stunt work, some pretty fun prosthetic work. Yeah, like they literally have Boa Bobo in this and he looks like Boa Bobo from the games. It's, it's really cool. They did with Double Dragon what street fighter failed to do with blanca yeah they were well, like a lot of american video game adaptations go into them with this whole like oh but video games are stupid and the source material is stupid so we need to do everything that's not a video game movie adaptation because double dragon had the balls to be like well boa bobo looks like this in the game so boa bobo should look like this in the movie that's cool man there are so many stories with this film that i can see to do with some of the stunts and some of the stuff that went on and i i put way i this will probably be one of my first nominations for lights camera game over and it'll be a fun one because as you said you've got one interview so there'll be some diving to do to piece together what story we can i'm looking forward to it i'm into it also the soundtrack it featured coolio yeah it featured coolio (laughs) i have been sat on this interview it's not it's it's not audio it's it's only written down like we were basically emailing back and forth because we couldn't find a time for us to both sit down together but i've got it and it's just been sat there in my emails for you know four years at this point just sat there with nothing and i've really had no space for it so it'd be nice to actually give it a home somewhere and also like many films it is kind of getting reappraised because it did have a home video release it did have a dvd release it also has a blu-ray release and as of 2020 the american blu-ray release has actually grossed over 1.3 million dollars in american sales that is pretty good going that's quite a few sales yeah that's pretty good going and I wonder if that is, it's the Paul Dini thing. I mean, yeah, like it's definitely appraisal things. It is, you know, our generation buying things from our childhood of like, oh, I remember that. I rented it and I really liked it. So I'll get that for my collection, this, that and the other. But I wonder if it is also people who are just like, you know, it's it's going back and seeing the career trajectory of Paul Dini. This is just around the time of Batman, the animated series, where he's about to make his name. This is like early Dini work. So that's cool from sort of like a historical perspective. Just, I mean, just before we do move on, Double Dragon 5, uh, it was the first Double Dragon game to be made outside of uh, Japan. It was an American-made Double Dragon game. And because it was an American-made Double Dragon game, they were like, huh, let's sack off the side-scrolling beat-em-up element of this and just make Street Fighter 2. And so they did. And yeah, it was pretty good it was you know it got released on the jaguar at the very least and it got it scored better than kasumi ninja and dragon the bruce lee story so it's got that going for it but like as you would probably expect most of the reviews were just like not as good as street fighter 2 and it's a poor man street fighter 2 clone but let's get into our final challenge what are we playing games master the final challenge i prepare is on the grunge fest to come up way of the warrior on the 3d the characters I've chosen, Shaky Jake and Fox, are a disagreeable pair. 
but their repertoire of special moves should ensure an entertaining bout of fisticuffs. As usual, players have three rounds to prove who's the dirtiest fighter. It's a game that you and I talked about actually at length in episode three of uh, Under Consultation of this series when it was reviewed, and it all ended up on the cutting room floor because that episode was running at an hour 50 as it was, and there was just too much, so we just axed it all out. We actually went through the entire recording process, and I'll be honest, listening to it back, I was really happy with how that segment turned out. It was really good, and then there was the moment of, we get this as a challenge. Shit. Yeah. So out it goes, and Luke, off you go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, where the, like, to be honest, we kind of like covered the broad strokes of it. The soundtrack by White Zombie is awesome. This was done on a shoestring budget, and I love the guerrilla nature of making this. This was made in someone's flat. This is a green screen digitized game made in someone's flat that was not big enough to have a green screen in there because they couldn't get the right depth and like, you know, get all the, the lighting and everything right. So the camera was literally outside their flat. Their flat door was opened up. They put the camera outside, shooting into the flat against the green screen. All of the actors are their mates and they were all paid like a couple of hundred bucks each to go and do this. They would go down to um, stores to go and buy costumes. One of the person's costumes is literally made out of Happy Meal boxes and gubbins that you got from a Happy Meal. It's made from various toys and stuff. This is proper guerrilla video gaming. And like, it's a, it's not a good game. And we, I think we talked about this in the cut version of this. And it's not a good game. But reading about how it was made really does kind of warm me towards it and actually really has made me reappraise my feelings on the game and of course it was one of the starting points for naughty doc someone that would go on to much bigger and better and more expensive things it's kind of crazy when you do look at the kind of gonzo gorilla filmmaking approach that was taken to this game like various concerned neighbors wondering why people with toys stuck all over them are running in and out of a flat and doing jumping karate moves and god knows what else and then these guys would go on to develop some of the biggest and most well-received games of the last generation albeit not without being a problematic development environment themselves and probably a long long way from those indie all for one one for all routes because this game started with them taking the money that they had made from rings of power and immediately putting it back into this game it's amazing amazing scenes really look back in this and you know this game and the success of the, i say the success of this game this game got them their three game deal with universal and that three game deal became the crash bandicoot series on the playstation without this game we may not have got crash so that's a really really cool like you know history point for us in our timeline and using the Wayback machine i was looking through naughty dog's websites and i found a blog post about like they were basically talking about their you know filmography you know videography for you know for lack of a better term and so this post would have been made about 1999 because it's just after the release of crash team racing so this is their own words about the game five years after it was released we admit it the game is a total hack nobody makes games this cheap the most expensive costume in the game was 150 bucks our friends got paid $25 to be the characters. It was made on two old Macs. 
Because we had no blue screen, we put a gigantic tan canvas. We called it the tan screen. We nailed the thing straight into the walls of our apartment we rented in Boston. Our landlord was pissed. We lost our security deposit. To get the right focal distance to film the characters, we had to put the camera in the hallway outside our apartments. Our neighbors were always walking by looking in the door at guys in ninja costumes dancing around. We never explained it to them. They were pissed. Wave of the Warrior was 3DO's first fighting game. It beat Super Street Fighter and Samurai Showdown to market and was among the top 10 best-selling 3DO games of the time and ended up outselling Samurai Showdown in the States. Samurai Showdown were pissed. We had a lot of fans. It was sort of a cult classic on the 3DO. Then again, any 3DO game that did well was a cult classic. Can't argue with that last statement. It was also almost a 3DO-powered arcade game. They got as far as doing prototypes with American laser games. Oh, cool. Like a couple of machines were put together, and essentially, apart from the joysticks, it was a 3DO hooked up to a TV. The making of this game sounds horrendous as well. I found this interview from 1996 where they were like, yeah, there was no ventilation in the flat either because the canvas was in the way of the windows. And the quote is like, we were using two 1,000 watt lights. We had a thermometer in the apartment that 105 degrees during Nikki Chan's filming. That's about 40 degrees Celsius indoors. Oh, Ooh. that sounds gross. That's like the inside of a kebab seller's armpit at the end of a Friday night. That's not going to be pleasant. Ooh, it's yeah, going to be hot, gross. sweaty, and meaty. Eesh, not nice at all. Uh, what is nice is the soundtrack. The last challenge will feature two of our high-budget fighters. It will be Shaky Jake versus Fox. And when you kind of know the backstory of the game and you look at those characters, you're like, yeah, that does look like it was made in someone's apartment, doesn't it? The, the actual characters, like the size of the characters, looks pretty good compared to Mortal Kombat. They're big characters but they look janky as hell and they move jankily as well and for this final challenge we have living proof that games players don't just play games all the time because we have a boyfriend and girlfriend combination ian hodgson and andrea martin what i'd like to do with you two is a little bit of uh, mr and mrs here so uh, Ian, if you'd like to put your hands over your ears just so i'm going to ask andrea a couple of questions about herself see if ian can answer the same questions with the same answers andrea question one what would you prefer to get chocolates or flowers Chocolates. Chocolates. And the second question is, um, are Ian's mates better looking than him? No. Okay, thank you very much. Ian, you can take your hands off your ears. Now, right, which would Andrea prefer? Chocolates or flowers? Chocolates, probably. Was that what you said? Yep. One for one. Second question. I asked Andrea, are your mates better looking than you? What did she say? <laughs> probably not. No, she said they were. So we got half of them correct. Not bad there. We have got a boyfriend and girlfriend team of Ian and Andrea playing tonight, which is very, very nice. Very, very sweet. And it allows Dominic Diamond to play the marriage game. Ian has to put his hands over his ears as Dom asks Andrea the following questions. Would she prefer flowers or chocolates? To which he answers, chocolates. Secondly, are Ian's mates better looking than him? And she very giggly says, no, they're not. She does think for a second, though, doesn't she? <laughs> it's not an immediate, no, of course not. Well, you've got to play it up, haven't you? But Ian, you know, he takes his fingers out of his ears. Chocolates, bang, straight in there. He gets that right. And credit to him, he also gets the second question right. But because Dominic Diamond's a little prick, he was like, no, she actually said that your mates are well fitter than you. I loved Andrew's reaction to this. She just looks horrified at him. <laughs> and Ian just sort of like has to sort of laugh it all off and stuff. What an absolute little tool he is. Made me laugh though. 
It made me laugh as well. It's proper mean, but it is funny. Speaking of being mean and funny. <laughs> Mothers, lock up your daughters because Dave Perry's in the pulpit. Dave, I've got to ask you about your leather jerkin. Does it, do you get joggers nipple? I found a little bit of Vaseline in the mornings. No problem. <laughs> no, tell us about the special moves of these two characters, Dave. Well, this is one of my favourite 3DO games, and Fox is a voodoo man. He's got things like voodoo dust and magic stars to throw at his opponent. Shaky Jake is an outback brawler, and he can fly across the screen, or he's got a fiery breath, and he can toast his opponent with that. Okay, thanks for now, Dave. Yep, mothers, lock up your daughters. Dave Perry is in the pulpit, and Dom wants to know if his leather jerking gives him Jocker's nipple. Fair fucks to Dave. He immediately leaps on this one and goes, nah, mate, bit of Vaseline gets you sorted for the entire day. He's not wrong either. No, absolutely. And you'd think now, ah, Dave, that's a really, really good answer there. Surely Dominic's not going to take the piss out of you now while you're talking about the character special moves. Nope. Dominic Diamond is mocking him behind Dave Perry's back as he's describing the fighters. But also, Dave, Dave Perry, Mr. Porky Pie here. He's saying that this is one of his favourite 3DO games. It might be. It could very well be one of his favourite 3DO games. It looks like the sort of game Dave Perry would like. Oh, do, do a throwback to the other week. Jimmy Hill. <laughs> and it's apropos that Ian is playing as Shaky Jake because this game is shaky. Good crikey, is it clunky? It's clunky, but it's a clunky that Andrea can apparently deal with because when this fight gets underway, she kicks his ass at first. His health disappears more quickly than the Vaseline when Dave Perry's in town. From straight down, and it is an absolute miracle when Shaky Jake makes a comeback and actually wins the round, kind of. Because there is a moment when Fox just stands there swaying backwards and forwards while Jake jumps up and down, and then the round ends. Yeah, I think it was like... It was like to do a killer blow kind of thing, right? Like, I think that's what it was supposed to be, like a finish him style thing. But because she doesn't do it, he just falls. Second round, and once again, Andrea as Fox takes the initial flurry. And despite Jake making another comeback and landing his fire breath, Andrea takes the second round. So, ooh, we're on to a deciding round. It's exciting when that happens, normally, but not in this case, because this game is shit. Yeah, this is very much Ian is attempting special moves and Andrea is throwing punches and kicks. For video game purists, beat-em-up purists, Andrea's tactics will be very infuriating because it's not the proper way to play the game. But you cannot argue with its effectiveness because it totally works. Because Ian's there dicking around, trying to throw fireballs and stuff, and she's walking up to me like, punch punch, kick, punch, punch, just depleting down his health bar while he's like, no, let me do a fireball. And she does the exact same thing in the final round. He's there dicking around, trying to do some fireballs, trying to throw some of this, that and the other. She just walks up, punch, 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 you're dead. Andrea, right, we'll start with you. Um, you lost the first bit, but then you came hotling back. Um, what was, what was, tell me about some of the, the moves you were doing. Well, I did a throw in the first round, didn't really pull off, where he sort of put him on his back and just threw That's him right. down. Like a back break, And then yeah. I just, just did, um, like, face kicks mm -hmm. and punches. So, basically, uh, Ian, there's no shame in being beaten by a girl now, is there? No, none at all. <laughs> none at all. And in the post-match, Dom is immediately in there going, oh, you know, tell us about some of the moves you were doing. And Andrea's like, uh, oh, I did a backbreaker. But other than that, I, I just went for face kicks and punches. Yeah. She's not ashamed. She's not ashamed. And she, and she doesn't need to be either because it's a, an absolutely valid way of playing this game. 
Ian's face when he loses as well. The the joystick almost falls to the floor. His hands go over his head and his head goes into his lap as he realizes, oh, my mates are going to watch this. And all I'm going to hear from my mates from now until eternities. Do you remember when you went on TV and your girlfriend beat you on that crap, uh, crap fighting game? They'll probably just call it Street Fighter. No one will remember this as Way of the Warrior. Or Mortal Kombat. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember when you went on TV and your missus beat you at Street Fighter? And you're like, well, it was Way of the Warrior, actually. Doesn't matter, mate, because you lost on telly to your girlfriend, didn't you? And Dom does go in there and say, yeah, there's no shame in being beaten by a girl, is there? Really putting Ian on the spot because Ian has to say, no, none at all. He is right. There is mm-hmm. not. I did some research uh, into this, Ash. I went back into the archives Last week, I mentioned that uh, the player that was doing the Sonic and Knuckles challenge was the first uh, female gamer that we'd had um, since like series three. Andrea is our first non-male, non-celebrity golden joystick winner since series three, episode four. Wowzer. Yeah. When Amber Krieg won uh, the golden joystick by beating Mr. Well, she came second in Mr. Nuts in the opening challenge and then beat the lads playing Muhammad Ali's heavyweight boxing in the finals. And she won the games. She is our last girl winner of the Golden Joystick, not in a celebrity challenge. Welcome return for more games players that aren't just teenage boys. Completely agree. Could not agree with you more. Dom presents the joystick to Andrea in the name of equality. And Andrea clearly knows the score because she really goes for this joystick when the goblins are trying to keep it back. She was into it. She was she was up for that game because all the way through this series so far, the goblins don't hand over the joystick. No, no, no. You do have to kind of get it out of their grubby little hands. And this is one where she doesn't, she's not fucking ah. about it. She just goes, Vroom, give it. <laughs> it's awesome. Finished here now. I'm off to check that every science teacher has a beard but no moustache. See you in the next show. Bye-bye. Did your science teacher have a beard and no moustache? Honestly, I had so I, I had different science teachers for different subjects. So, on laws of average, yes. So that is going to do it for this week's episode. I think we'll draw it to a close. I I kind of really dug this episode in a way. Like I, I I enjoyed our first challenge. The FIFA one was fun. Way of the Warrior, like not a good game, but fun in terms of you know our challenges and the the marriage game and. You know, the sort of the clunky nature of it and Andrea getting the win. There was actually quite a lot I liked about this episode. What about you? No, absolutely the same. The uh, the news section was fun. The review section was fun. The consultation zone, we had a bit of throwback to a previous week, which is nice to have. We haven't had one of those multi-part stories for a while. It was a good episode, but not because all the games were absolutely great or even the features. Like, we talked a lot about Double Dragon. That movie is I love it. Way of the Warrior. It's a terrible game, but it was a lot of fun to talk about. And so I was really entertained. And I had a lot of fun talking with you about it as well, which is always a mark of a good episode. So I'm feeling quite favourable on this one. This is actually our third recording session doing this episode. Because of the way our, our schedules kind of worked out, we've had to do it in kind of like chunks and this and the other. And we're doing this on a Monday evening, which is kind of throws our schedule right out the window because we never usually do things on a Monday. And I think it's fair to say you and I are both feeling the, like, whether it's a busy weekend or whatever, like it took us a little while to kind of get into this chunk of the recording right like it took us a little while to get our our wheels moving in sync with each other yeah apologies to future and past me for the editing job (laughs) that we have just given you 
Yeah, very sorry, future Ash. But actually, like the more we talked about it, the more our wheels started to get greased and the more we started. And I think it's actually that's a credit to the episode that we were reviewing because it was a really flowing episode. And I kind of like, you know, the feature being not at the end of the new section, like doing it just before the final challenge. I like the way that it was broken up that way. So, yeah, I'm actually quite favorable of this. I'm not in the 90s because like, I didn't love the episode, but mm. I don't... But I think I'm certainly high 80s. I'm thinking like 88. I'm a bit lower. I was going to go 86. That, do you know what's funny? That was exact, That was my first score I had in my head was 86. And then I bumped it up to 88. I'm going to mark it down a little bit, possibly for the disjointed nature of the FIFA challenge. Like, boom, we're doing another FIFA challenge. We clearly told you about it. You must have forgotten. That threw me off a bit. Also, as fun as it was to talk about Way of the Warrior, it's a crap <laughs> game and it's terrible oh, yeah. to watch. Yeah, it's not good, is it? But that is going to draw it to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule each and every one of you. You can find us on Twitter at underconsolepod. You can find us on Instagram at under.console. And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Or if you want a bit of real-time interaction, you want to chat with us, chat with other listeners, chat with fans of Games Master, Under Consultation, and gaming in general, you can join our Discord we got a vibrant bunch there. we got some lovely people. We've had some lovely chats. We've got people doing their own streams, a couple of which are just making, what is it, Twitch affiliates? Congratulations, Matty, for that. But yeah, just a really nice group of people. We've been enjoying talking about the Euros as well. It's been some great football chat and no one kind of like pulling super serious football chat either. It's been fun banter, which I appreciate because I'm a filthy, filthy casual. Oh, same here. And kind of the same goes for new metal the uh, the music genre because me and a few others were chatting about new metal the other day and i it made me really appreciate the discord because we were just chatting about new metal throwing bands back and forth just talking about this that, and the other i made basically the same observation on twitter and had a lot of pedants come up to me like oh actually i think you'll find they're not really new metal if you if you look at the definition i was like oh fuck off will you like it doesn't matter like the the deftones are new metal get over it meanwhile i'm sat in the discord going i quite like pink floyd And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is our monthly Patreon exclusive show that takes this show format, but reviews other shows from the 90s. We've done game shows like Dale Supermarket Sweep. We've done Fun House. We've done Finders Keepers. We have done animated shows like Earthworm Jim and the Real Ghostbusters. We recently did the X-Files episode Ice, and we really, really enjoy doing that. We've got a lot more fun planned for you in the next few months. You'll also get access to our monthly community stream, Under Console Nation, where we all get together as the Under Console Nation and have a good old chat. And recently, we just did a director's commentary, not really director's commentary, just a commentary track, over the debut episode of The X-Files, which was really, really fun. And we have said we'll probably end up doing something like that again. And if you back us at the £5 level, you get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. And at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do you get? You get our Patreon supporter pack, which has a Patreon-exclusive mug, Patreon-exclusive stickers, badges, retro sweeties, retro trading cards, and £5 off our under-consultation t-shirt, which is available at our website, along with other badges, stickers, and mugs, underconsultation.com. 
And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Robert, Rich, Nick, Misha, Matt, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Cliff, Adam Warrington, Adam Rigby, Adam D, Sean, and Colin. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.